I am so excited to have Dr. Tiffany Preet, who is a member of the Blood Tribe of the Blackfoot Confederacy and is also a, an alumni of Westwind School Division. She is currently working on her postdoctoral work and is focused on implementing Truth and Reconciliation Commission Calls to Action on the Blood Reserve. I invite you to read her entire bio in our show notes and on our website. And today we welcome Dr. Tiffany Preet to Nun Talks. Dr. Preet and I are going to be involved in a two-part series uh, centered around trauma um, and um, intergenerational trauma and trauma in education and trauma-informed practices in education. So I'm really excited uh, to have her with us today and to deepen our understanding of the long-term effects um, on trauma, but then also deepen our understanding how we can help improve relationships, lives, and families um, by understanding trauma better. And so uh, today I welcome with us uh, Dr. Uh, Tiffany Preet, and, and again, excited to hear from her and, and have her share with us some of uh, her learning and her knowledge and, and even probably some experiences. So um, Dr. Preet, we'll let you begin with uh, some of the things that you'd like to start off and, and talk about with us today. Sure, thank you. And thank you very much for inviting me to be here today. I'm excited to be here and to talk on this topic with you. So I wanted to start off by first sharing a story uh, that I think will help exemplify the importance of this topic. And it's also a part of, storing is a part of Blackfoot ways of knowing, being, and doing. And I think that it, it's a really nice way that helps us to connect with knowledge in a way that we wouldn't be able to do if I just sat here and, and lectured on exactly what trauma is. So one of my responsibilities of being Dr. Preet is that I get to research, and I love researching. I'm so privileged that I get to engage in research, and I write all of my research projects for my own people so that they can benefit from the research that I do. Awesome. And a few years ago, I designed a research project that examines the effectiveness of Alberta Education's First Nations, Métis, and Inuit policy framework. Um, and that's the current policy framework that Alberta Education has in place for all Albertan students to learn about the Indigenous peoples of Canada. And so I took a look at how effective this policy framework is at creating positive perceptions of Indigenous peoples, as well as uh, increasing students' understanding of Indigenous peoples based on the learning objectives that are outlined in the policy framework. And I want to share with you one significant finding that came out of that research study. Uh, and I discovered that non-Indigenous students lacked an understanding of the negative implications that colonization plays in our society today. So students weren't able to see how past events shaped Indigenous people's present and future circumstances. And this finding is actually not that unique in a Canadian context. Uh, many Canadians express the same sentiment. And as an Indigenous person, and I'm sure you could ask any other Indigenous person and they would uh, have a similar answer, one of the most frequent questions that I get asked is, why can't you just get over it? And it's really not a simple question to answer, to truly understand why Indigenous peoples haven't been able to, to get over it. Canadians really need to understand uh, what has happened to Indigenous peoples uh, and the role that colonization has played in the development of our entire Canadian society. 
So our Canadian history has unfortunately been largely whitewashed. And, and what I mean by whitewashed is that our Canadian history is told mostly from a Euro-Western lens that um, tells a particular narrative and justification for the way that Indigenous peoples have been treated. Uh, so our history has been very narrow and selective in what gets taught. Uh, and we don't talk about the traumatic events that have taken place for the Indigenous peoples of Canada. Um, that part has largely been omitted from our society. So I think it's important to, to um, recognize and to understand the events that shape our present-day Canada. And so I'm excited to be here to shed some light on this subject matter of intergenerational trauma. Awesome. I, I really appreciate that uh, the part of your conversation was a little bit about your own discovery as you went into this research. And I think for all of us, it's really important that we... Um, we do do our, our due diligence, I guess, and, and research and, and find answers to questions and, and be reflective of our own values and beliefs and, and in, improve and increase in our, in our understanding and our foundational knowledge. So today as we begin this conversation about uh, trauma, I think it'd be important um, if, if our listeners um, had a good working definition of, of trauma and what that would look like um, on, on paper or otherwise. So um, would, would you mind sharing with us a, a definition that you would use uh, related to trauma? Sure, yeah. Uh, so according to the American Psychological Association, they define trauma as any disturbing experience that results in significant fear, helplessness, dissociation, confusion, or other disruptive feelings, intense enough to have a long-lasting negative effect on a person's attitudes, behavior, and other aspects of functioning. Traumatic events include those caused by human behavior, which could be um, rape or war, as well as by nature, so earthquakes, and often challenge an individual's view of the world as a just, safe, and predictable place. So there are many different types of trauma and uh, many different ways in which trauma is categorized. But in general, uh, it is agreed upon that there is about four uh, main types of trauma that a person may encounter in their lifetime. Uh, and so I'm going to talk about those four types of trauma and how they've been categorized. Uh, the first one is called small t, and it's the type of trauma that affects an individual on a personal level, but isn't considered life-threatening. And so these traumatic events are still, um, can be emotional, um, but uh, it mostly just affects your normal day-to-day -day life. So that could be losing your job, um, moving to a new home, the loss of a family member. Uh, and then second, we have big T, uh, which is also sometimes referred to as acute trauma. And it's generally a single event trauma that happens unexpectedly, and it can be highly stressful and sometimes dangerous. So examples would be being held at gunpoint, uh, being raped, or uh, being involved in a motor vehicle accident. The third type is chronic trauma, and that is trauma that occurs on a regular basis over a period of time and is highly stressful. Uh, so for uh, a child, this could be uh, multiple events of being physically abused or maybe sexually abused or living in a country um, and ex that's experiencing war, so you, you would be um, seeing that every day. The fourth type is called complex trauma, and it's a type of trauma that involves experiencing multiple types of chronic events um, over a period of time. 
So it, it could be multiple events such as being um, physically abused and sexually abused at the same time. And so those, those are the um, most common agreed upon types of trauma that a person might experience in their lifetime. Thank you. I know that uh, obviously the, the topic of, of trauma and, and um, the events surrounding trauma and some of the things we'll talk about um, are, are quite sensitive to people. And so we do, uh, we do want to um, acknowledge that and, and acknowledge that each of us and those probably listening to the, the podcast have experienced uh, um, trauma in their life or, or maybe currently are. And, and we want to make sure that they, they know that, that there are, there's help out there and that, that people can, can help and support. But um, we also know that, that trauma impacts all of us differently at different levels. And like you mentioned, the four types, depending on what we've experienced and things like that. Um, but one of the, the conversations that I think is really important is that conversation around, um, and, and a question that I, um, I'm not going to say have struggled with, but have, have wanted to understand deeper, um, is the, the concept of intergenerational trauma and what maybe happens to me, uh, Austin Nunn and, um, it can impact my children and maybe my grandchildren and maybe even my great-great-grandchildren. And so um, if you wouldn't mind for just a minute, uh, just talk to us about what uh, intergenerational trauma is and, and how that impacts uh, life and some of, the, some of the things around intergenerational trauma. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I, I think it would be good to, to give a definition of what um, intergenerational trauma is. Um, and according to the American Psychological Association, they define intergenerational trauma as a phenomenon in which the descendants of a person who has experienced a terrifying event show adverse emotional and behavioral reactions to the event that are similar to those of the person himself or herself. These reactions vary by generation, but often include shame, increased anxiety and guilt, a heightened sense of vulnerability and helplessness, low self-esteem, depression, suicidality, substance abuse, dissociation, hypervigilance, intrusive thoughts, difficulty with relationships and attachments to other, difficulty in regulating aggression, and extreme reactivity to stress. So uh, just as there's different categories that go along with um, trauma in general. There are other categories that go along with intergenerational trauma as well. So I'm going to speak about three of the types of categories. Uh, and the last one isn't um, exclusive to intergenerational trauma, but it does pair uh, very nicely with intergenerational trauma as well. Um, so the, the first type is intergenerational trauma, uh, and it's when a parent experienced distressing events in their childhood and have not been addressed or resolved, and they pass on to their children their emotional and behavioral responses to these situations. Uh, next, we have historical trauma that is sometimes called cultural trauma and um, is considered a type of intergenerational trauma. And it refers to a group of people of a community that has suffered from historical and systemic abuse and injustices over a period of time. And according to Angela Uwachi Willig, it forever changes the group's consciousness and identity. Uh, and the last one that I wanted to talk about was secondary trauma. And it's the type of trauma 
that when an individual has experienced a particular traumatic event and they share their story about their experience with that event, somebody who is listening to that um, story can themselves become traumatized. Um, so those are uh, three of the types of intergenerational trauma. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And I, I think that that's a, a, a complex... Um, a complex thing, intergenerational trauma, that we could all do a better job in understanding. Um, and especially as educators, really important when a student walks into our classroom and we want to, not that we want to talk to them about their, their trauma necessarily, but understand that they could be coming with a certain set of um, background and, and things that could impact learning. And so having that deeper understanding of intergenerational trauma and being able to plan and prepare for that, which we will actually talk about in our next podcast about um, working with and teaching um, students who have had these experiences or their family members have. And so I, um, I know that uh, a topic that we, we all want to understand deeper and, and have a greater appreciation for is that uh, intergenerational trauma, but the application and the impact um, on on an indigenous um, context. And um, I I hope that we can have a a conversation about that and and you can share some of your thoughts and and insights into that and and even maybe some examples that we can um, help deepen our understanding of, of intergenerational trauma um, related to, to that Indigenous uh, conversation. Okay, thank you. Um, so when talking about intergenerational trauma, uh, particularly uh, in an Indigenous context in Canada, uh, most experts would agree um, uh, that intergenerational trauma would include genocide. And so experts inside and outside of Canada uh, would also agree that um, what has happened to the Indigenous peoples of Canada uh, is called cultural genocide. So I'm going to define what cultural genocide is uh, by using the definition that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada uses in their final report. Uh, So cultural genocide is the destruction of those structures and practices that allow the group to continue as a group. States that engage in cultural genocide set out to destroy the political and social institutions of the targeted group. Land is seized and populations are forcibly transferred and their movement is restricted. Languages are banned, spiritual leaders are persecuted, spiritual practices are forbidden, and objects of spiritual value are confiscated and destroyed. And most significantly to the issue at hand, families are disrupted to prevent the transmission of cultural values and identity from one generation to the next. Uh, So in general, when we do hear the term intergenerational trauma in an Indigenous context, most people think about the Indian residential school system. And it most certainly does apply to an Indian residential school system, but intergenerational trauma encompasses so much more than just the Indian residential school system. So I want to go back to the definition of cultural genocide, and it really applies to every aspect that has been laid out in that definition. The Canadian government was able to achieve cultural genocide through the Indian Act, 
And I, I don't want to put you on the spot. I just want you to, to think about a question and, and your listeners to think about this. Um, do you know what the purpose of the Indian Act has been? Just repeat that for me again. <laughs> sure. Do you know what the purpose of the Indian Act has been? And do, do I know what the purpose is? Yes. Um, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I'm happy to learn from you, so I'll, I'll give you a chance to, to speak to that for me. Sure, yes. I, I, I didn't want to, to put you on the no, spot. No, it's all good. Just... I'm happy to be put on the spot. That's why we're having the show. <laughs> okay. Um, so very simply, the purpose of the Indian Act was to assimilate Indigenous peoples into Canadian society. And the Canadian government wanted to completely eradicate Canada of its indigenous population. But they didn't want to do this by killing off indigenous peoples. Uh, they wanted to turn them against their own traditional way of life and try to make them into a regular Canadian citizen. Uh, so that indigenous peoples would identify as being Canadian instead of by their indigenous affiliation. And so they used the Indian Act to make laws and policies um, around politics, education, land, religion, and, and even language. And it's traumatic to have your way of life ripped from you and to be made illegal. It's traumatic to be reduced to a small parcel of land and not be allowed off your reserve, and to be policed with the pass system that was used to ensure that all Indigenous people stayed on their reserve. To some Indigenous peoples, it was traumatic to be completely relocated away from their traditional lands and given a reserve somewhere that they were not familiar with. It's traumatic for your governing system to be dismantled and instead have imposed upon you an electoral system that is not traditional to the peoples and undermines Indigenous self-governance and the uniqueness in which each nation had in accordance to their own governance system. So spiritual practices were outlawed and you weren't able to practice your own faith or your own spiritual beliefs. For the Blackfoot people, the okan was banned, and that's uh, more commonly referred to as Sundance. Uh, and so to further add to that, the Euro-Western education system was also imposed upon Indigenous peoples. And it was by law that Indigenous children had to attend one of those schools. Uh, and uh, that was run by different religions that the Canadian government had contracted. Uh, but in order to attend one of those schools, you actually had to be a baptized member in order to um, attend that school. So it was a direct attempt at trying to get rid of Indigenous spirituality practices. And there are so many different um, examples of intergenerational trauma that I could share with you. Uh, but I'm going to share the three most prominent uh, intergenerational trauma that Indigenous peoples are experiencing today. So the first one is the Euro-Western education schools that were in place for over a century. Uh, the most commonly known one is the residential school system, but there are actually several different types of schools that the Canadian government had used to try and assimilate Indigenous children. And depending on the year, the Indian Act did um, change the age that children had to uh, mandatory attend school. So some years it would be age six and other years it might be age seven. Uh, so on your birthday, you actually, the Indian agent would come to your house, pick you up and bring you to one of these schools. And uh, again, depending on what year it was that you attended the school, uh, you most likely would never return home until you were an adult um, if you didn't die in these schools. 
Uh, it's well documented, the neglect that children received in these schools. They were cramped spaces. The children were undernourished, and many of them experienced emotional, physical, and sexual abuse at the hands of the school personnel who were entrusted to care for these children. There were unethical research studies that they did upon the children, and these schools created a disruption in the family structure. It robbed parents of the opportunity to raise their children and to pass on to them their cultural values and their language. As well, there were traumas incurred by the children that for many experienced post-traumatic stress disorder. And after being in a school like that for a number of years, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder just doesn't magically disappear. It doesn't go away once you leave the schools. Um, so this is one type of intergenerational trauma that Indigenous peoples are currently living with. The last residential school closed in 1996. And so that's part of my generation the horrors that happened in these schools were not acknowledged by the Canadian government until 2008, and it wasn't until after that that they started to put into place any kind of help or treatment for Indigenous peoples who, who attended these schools. Um, so that is still a trauma that we are still processing and, and trying to overcome. Uh, and that brings me to the next type of intergenerational trauma, which is related to the Euro-Western education schools. And so after experiencing such traumatic events at these schools, the government didn't provide any kind of supports in terms of mental health or wellness. So we have these newly young adults who um, aged out of the system, and they were left on their, by themselves to try and address these issues uh, that they were facing that were caused by these schools uh, and to find ways to, to cope with what it is that they experienced. So to compound that situation, um, survivors were actually taught not to say anything about their experiences. Um, and for some of the survivor stories that I've heard too, and, and this is across Canada, not just for the blood people, um, they have said that they won't say anything bad about their experience being in these schools because the religious school personnel had told them as children that if they said anything bad about these schools or what was going on in these schools, that they were going to burn in hell. And so that caused a, a fear uh, in them from childhood that they just weren't able to overcome. It was a very unhealthy situation and would only add to post-traumatic stress disorder for these children. So many of the survivors who left the schools had to try and find ways of coping with what had happened to them, while at the same time their spiritual beliefs had been banned by the Canadian government. So they, they couldn't turn to that as a way to try and cope. Um, and unfortunately, many of them turned to maladaptive coping strategies that were negative in the long run. And I like using the term that Dr. Negan Sinclair from the University of Manitoba uses, and it's self-medicating. So many of the survivors had turned to self-medication, so using certain substances to try and cope with, with what it was that they were dealing with. Uh, and the problem with using substances is that it only temporarily addresses the problem. It doesn't actually fix the problem. So we have generations who use self-medication because mental health wellness services uh, were not available to them at that time. Uh, their indigenous spiritual beliefs had been made illegal and generations were severed from their own traditional teachings. So we have multiple generations of survivors 
um, seeing this kind of behavior using um, substances to try and cope with trauma. And then you have generations after that seeing those generations using substance substances, which um, has been um, severely very ineffective. So that's another type of intergenerational trauma that we suffer from. And the last type of intergenerational trauma that I wanted to speak about, again, it stems from the Indian Act, and it's in regards to indigenous women. And it has been well documented how historically European powers viewed women and operated from a gender bias and inequality. So this language and policy was introduced to indigenous policy and eventually became a part of the Indian Act. And indigenous women are not actually considered or were not considered to be of value, so they were not actually members of their own tribe. Uh, the only way that they uh, were able to have status uh, was through their husbands. Uh, their husbands would hold status, just only the men would. And so if a woman married a man who passed away, or if they decided to leave them, um, or, or in the Indian Act, it, it was also um, stated that if women were found to be not of good moral character, they could have their status taken away from them. And so if, if their husbands died or left them, they would lose their status and become what, what is called disenfranchised, and that means losing your status. And they would not regain their status in their home tribe. They would um, just completely lose their status. They weren't allowed to return to their home tribe or to live on their home reserve. And they would have to try and integrate into Canadian society, which was really very hard. Um, for one thing, it's kind of a cultural shock. Uh, and another, being accepted by Canadians if, if they would accept you. And so today, we do have. Um, populations of urban indigenous people. Uh, some of it is by choice that some indigenous people decide to move to the city. Some of them are forced off the reserve because there's just not enough jobs for all of us to um, be sustained on the reserve. But uh, the majority of urban populations come from indigenous women who were disenfranchised and forced to, to uh, move off the reserves. So it has set a precedent in the way in which Indigenous women's lives are viewed and valued. And in 2019, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Final Report came out. And it states that Indigenous women are 16 times more likely to be murdered or missing than Euro-Western women living in Canada. As well, Indigenous women experience higher rates of physical assault and sexual violence than any other race in Canada. So these are only three examples of intergenerational trauma that Indigenous peoples are living with, and there are so many more that, that we could talk about. Uh, but I do want to go back to the story that I shared at the beginning of the podcast. And it isn't just simply asking Indigenous peoples to just get over it. Far too often, Indigenous peoples are ashamed for the present circumstances that we find ourselves in. But we didn't do this to ourselves. We didn't write legislation to try and eradicate ourselves. We didn't introduce certain policies that have had long-lasting and damaging effects upon generations of Indigenous peoples. Instead, we've been trying to survive something that has been forced upon us for over a century. We need to be able to change the structures of oppression that are entrenched in our Canadian society so that Indigenous peoples do have that opportunity to get over it, but in a healthy way. And until then, we can't get over something that we are currently 
living with and asking us to get over it is asking us to accept the Canadian population turning a blind eye to what colonization has done and continues to do to us and how that benefits the majority of Canadians who have settled upon these lands. That, that is a lot to take in. <laughs> and, and, and I mean that in the sense of, you know, we, we all, uh, at least my feeling is, and, and uh, I, I hope others feel the same, that we, we need to continue to, to understand um, a definition, and you gave us a great definition of, of what trauma is, and then appreciate that many around us um, and, and students walking in our classroom or, or, or students uh, or just kids that we associate with or adults or, or anyone um, is probably and can be dealing with types of intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. And then when we take and, and consider that we, we put that in the context of, of Canadian Indigenous people and the experiences of, um, of uh, residential schools and the experiences of, of not being able to uh, recover in a healthy way in, in related to mental health and, and all of those types of things. And then, as you mentioned at the end, um, the rights and the values and the status of, of ind- Indigenous uh, women. Um, I really hope that those that listen um, to this podcast today um, can, can do their part um, to, to continue to build that, that, that foundational knowledge, um, to um, look at things from a, a different or new perspective, um, the, the, the growth of their own mindset, um, so to speak. Um, and, and honestly, and, and being as transparent as uh, Austin Nunn can be, is, that, is, is looking at myself and, and working it out in my own mind about uh, what, what can I do? What can I do to be better? Where do I, where do I fit into this, this healing process? And this, um, I don't know, for lack of a better term off the top of my tongue in a podcast, um, <laughs> make the world a better place uh, for, uh, for everyone and for Canadians um, in general and for the indigenous population, I think I, I play a role in that as an individual and as a person um, and as a, a, a person involved in, in education. Um, and also knowing, and I, I think you would agree with me, we probably will stumble once in a while and mm-hmm. make, mis- make mistakes or um, as we go through this, this process. Of, of improvement and healing and, and coming together, I guess. And so um, my last, uh, maybe less formal question um, that I would have um, for you for, to, to, to maybe guide, I'll say Austin Nunn, is um, what, what, would you, what would you say is a great starting point for me? Um, I, I really think that it's important to, to really understand what the, the past circumstances and history has been. I think that's something that doesn't get enough attention to. Like, I, I, again, I, I'm going to ask you a question, but I don't expect an answer. 
Um, I know that you you didn't grow up here in Kirsten, that, that you've moved here. Yeah. Um, but do you know the history and the story of the blood people and, and, and um, their history of colonization and everything that's happened up until this, this point in time? For me, some, because I have done some reading and, and yeah. read a few books, and I have a really good friend who I'm going to, we had him on the podcast earlier, but uh, Mr. Moses Spearchief. And yeah. so when I first came, I actually took opportunity because he was at my school to mm-hmm. sit and visit with him uh, quite a few times. So, so I do have some, but I certainly could know more and, mm-hmm. and understand uh, more. And, and so that's, that's a, great, uh, a great point you make to me is, um, I don't know, I'll use the education term, be a lifelong learner, but, but really be a learner of, of the people that are around and the cultures that exist in our, in our neighborhood, in our school, and in our community, and, and be part of that. So I, I appreciate that. Well, I, I, unless you have any final things you want to, to say, I really appreciate you coming on our podcast today and, and addressing this, uh, this topic of, uh, of trauma, intergenerational trauma, and intergenerational trauma um, as it applies in the indigenous context and, and giving us that, that overview. I know it's much deeper. Uh, each of those topics that you talked about are, are much deeper than we have time for. Um, but I look forward to our, our next conversation um, around um, kind of that trauma-informed practice piece in, in education. And, uh, and thank you very much, uh, really on behalf of Westwind, but really on behalf of myself for, for coming. And uh, um, always, uh, always difficult, I'm guessing, uh, for all of us to um, put ourselves on the line on a show and have people <laughs> listen to what we have to say. But uh, I'm, I'm grateful uh, for the privilege to have you uh, be with us today. Um, any final um, parting words you'd like to share? I I don't think so, and I'm very um, very thrilled that you invited me to be here and to have this opportunity to uh, speak on intergenerational trauma. So I, I hope that your listeners get a lot out of it, and I know it's a lot that I covered as well. So hopefully, maybe you can listen to it a couple of times. <laughs> awesome. No, I think that's important, and then to take the topics and and dive into them a little bit for our our own understanding. So, again, thanks for being here today, and uh, to those that have opportunity to listen, we hope you have a great day.